of Thelma, granddaughter of Eula, great-granddaughter of Sarah, great-great-granddaughter of Adeline, great-great-great-granddaughter of Mary Jane, niece to many, aunt to many more, sister to Patrice, Belinda, Mary, and Jacqueline, mother to Dominique, and I am here because I am your sister friend. Sisterfest, a two-part celebration of mothers, daughters, sisters, and sister friends, coming up on the Janice Adams Show. Adams. Welcome to the show. This week, part two of the Sister Day's Mother-Daughter Sister Fest, a celebration of women and our lives, with my guests Dakota Nelson, a recent college grad and digital media marketing specialist, Deborah Peyton Jones, founder of Voter Education 365, Elle Cole, mompreneur, author, and advocate for children with sickle cell anemia, Marianne Howland, founder and CEO of Ibis Communications, author of Warrior Rising. Irma McLaurin, former president of Shaw University and founder of the Irma McLaurin Black Feminist Archive. I began the event with this question, who are you and how did you come to be here today? A planned discussion quickly morphed into more of a late-night heart-to-heart with everyone huddled on one big bed. From that came a moving calling of the ancestral role, the names of mothers, grandmothers, great-grandmothers, great-great-grandmothers even, across centuries, women whose lives and legacies had brought us together. From there, our no-holds-barred conversation led us over mountains, through valleys, and somehow to the subject of hair. Hair. Here's part two of Sister Best. This pathology has been so spewed on Black people that... It, it doesn't go away. I mean, you abuse somebody just because you say, I'm not abusing you today the same way I used to. You know, it, that doesn't mean it goes away. But but here you have, I, I'm just listening to you talk about that. And I'm remembering my grandmother um, and my family was extremely supportive. They, my father, unfortunately, died when, when I was 12. But my family was extremely supportive in every conceivable way. But I do remember my grandmother going through this whole thing about your hair is your beauty, which I love as the as the metaphor, especially, you know, for where we've just taken it for for how our hair does have power or whatever. But on the other hand, what she meant was because at that point, my hair was very long and straightened. And I remember when I've cut it, which was a conspiracy, I will tell you, between my dear friend Camille and number one black hairstylist in the country, John Atchison. And he said, oh, yes, you want your hair short. And he said, well, just, I, I said, well, not, you know, really short, but I, I, I've never really had it cut. So, and he said, well, just bend your hair head over a little. And he literally cut my hair mid back to almost the length it is now, okay? And because when I had even, and it was fine because it was much better, it set a tone for me that I'm still with. I, I, you know, waffle, no complaints. Thank you, John and Camille. But but um, it's become like a trademark. But I do remember when I, the very first time in my life, I was in graduate school when I stopped straightening my hair. And when I came home from California, my first um, Christmas from, from flying into JFK, and I was standing face to face with my mother and she was looking around 
trying to find her daughter. She could not recognize, she did not recognize her daughter. And when I was going to work over that semester, uh, we had a January term and I, and I had a, a job that I was going to do during that January term. And she announced to me that clearly I had no intention of being anything in life because of my hair. And that's the mother who had been so supportive, but that's when you see how much has been done to us and our family, because that was not my mother speaking. That was the wounding speaking. And I know that. And, and it's also not just here. I mean, I just left uh, Zimbabwe and South Africa and watching television, you know, it was great to see all these black shows, right? Just to see these these very shows with black directors and actors and, you know, it's around the culture. But I can tell you, wearing weaves and the synthetic hair is just rampant in Africa. It's like that is, you see an occasional person uh, with short hair, with an Afro or with braids, but wearing straight hair is just like rampant there. And I was just, I was just amazed at how pervasive it is, particularly in the media, uh, especially. You know, I want to, I want to ask you something about that, uh, Irma. I was going to go to Elle about, because of her wonderful locks and, and all of that. If she turns her head around a little bit to the side, yes, look at that. You know, thank you. Enough said. Gorgeous. Uh, but but um, I wanted to ask you all, really, you know, because you raised this issue about being on the continent. And I know being in the Caribbean, you you still are seeing you're seeing the colonization still. And also you're seeing the effect of um people around the world looking at America in all across the board, looking at the United States. I mean, our greatest export is the propaganda of our media, our films, and, and that's really the American export. And so you see that. And the question that I always come back to is, so who would we be if we weren't who we've become? Because we talk about these gaps, and there are gaps. There, you know, there are gaps in our family, but there are these gaps forced upon us in our extended family, in our ancestral family. Who do you think we would have been had we not become who we've become? I, I, I'd like to step in here at this point because uh, a little known fact is that I went to cosmetology school. And I did that in the, you know, when you were in high school, if you had, there were two sets of people, one set of people who could not make it academically. And then they went to what was called BOCES or to, to a technical school uh, because they were able to find a trade. Then there were those of us who had done math nine and eighth grade and had finished all of our credits by the time we were in 11th grade. And so it was either not graduate early or do something else. So I chose to go to cosmetology school and being, for, I, Marianne is a New Yorker and how, I don't know how many others are New Yorker, but in New York, you also get a Regents diploma. If after you've done your regular diploma and classes, if you passed the uh, state tests for a language and sciences and all, you also got a Regents diploma. So I was one of those people who already had my Regents diploma and went to cosmetology school in uh, 11th and 12th grade. You spent half the day at cosmetology school, now they have the day in regular classes. And I found that the majority of people of color, well, there were only two of us in my class that were there um, doing and learning about hair that was not ours. I could do um, any set on anyone because they weren't they weren't teaching for black hair so we had to teach ourselves about black hair while we were in school uh, i had done hair uh, speaking of the 60s when we you guys were making reference to the 60s and black power say it loud i'm black and i'm proud wearing your naturals i would braid starting at eight years old i was a prolific braider starting at eight 
And so I would do my sister, I'm one of 11 children. So I would braid my sister, her husband, and their four friends' hair every Friday evening. And I would charge them $3 a head so that they would then have their blowouts on Monday morning. So they would wear their hair braided all weekend and then do the blowout on Monday morning so that their fur was nice and styled for the week. And then again on Friday night, then once it began to get matted, it was a braid over. So I did that for years um, with them. And uh, if you chronicle what the $3 a head was back in 1968, uh, I was a little rich person. I was very rich at the time and could buy everyone candy. So it was, it was great. But I say that to say that that was when people took care of their hair. They were properly moisturizing their hair. They were properly getting their hair cut on a regular basis. And they didn't have to worry. But then when the 70s and 80s happened, and a lot of those very people decided that they wanted to get perms, they were ill-prepared for what a perm and the ammonium thioglycolate was going to do to their hair. And so most people, I find, that wear wigs and weaves to this day are people who have had, we talk about the PTSD and the trauma from uh, growing up and all of the ills that were placed upon us and our people, but the same ills were placed upon our hair. And most of the women that you see wear them because they have no edges and they wear the wigs and weaves because they've not ever given any real, real time to explore what's going to help it grow. They just cover it up. No one takes time. So I really don't think that people want to wear uh, the wigs and weaves. I think that laziness and lack of research and the inability to know what's going to help. I mean, I have edges. I have edges. So my desire to cut my hair was because I desired to come. I cut my hair every three to four years. I cut it off. I let it grow. I cut it off. I let it grow. I cut it off. I permit. I don't permit. It's just because I'm, it's whoever I am in that moment that I will then have my hair reflect who I am in the, at the time. And so I remember when I first cut my hair in an environment that they didn't know that that was my norm, that I was going to just, you know, it's going to, yes, it's grown, but I'm just going to cut it off. They asked me whether or not I was still going to stay married <laughs> because they thought that maybe I had decided to like the same sex. And that's what their thought was when I cut my hair off. I said, I'm the same person I was two minutes ago. I just cut my hair. So it was really kind of funny when you get these questions from people who you just spoke to and you had a meeting with yesterday. You come back in, your hair is short, and now all of a sudden your whole lifestyle has changed. So people don't take enough time to focus on themselves or reality. And the things that they come up with are so hilarious because it's it's like, excuse me, I, I'm in the same environment. And yes, a lot of people wouldn't do it because they were looking for a job. But I told everyone, I, I said, when I got my college degree in the 80s, the percentage of people, not just Black women, the percentage of people that had bachelor's degrees in the 80s was so low that there was no reason for me to aspire to get a master's degree or a PhD at the time for a job. Right. I remember when I was 23 years old, I said, I'll get my master's and my PhD when I retire because those will be for me and not for a job. And I said, I, when I started this job 32 years ago, I'm retired. I said, the people that were my supervisors had high school degrees. That's right. And so That's right. how is it that you're going to expect a PhD when, so I said, uh, anyway, so my bottom line is most people, when they're looking at hair, are not really looking at the hair. They're doing things. I made, I made money all through, all through college doing hair. At the time when I was at my Florida A&M University, and anyone that watches this will tell you that I did everyone from the town DJ's wife to the, because it was men and women getting jerry curls back in that time. So, so I charged $7 for a dry cut, $40 for a, a, $40 for a jerry curl, 
And if you remember back in that time, jerry curls were going for 150 bucks. So yeah. I was making a lot of hand over fist money and helping pay my way through college. So I really think, and I was like, you're one of the first barbers. You know how they say that the mm -hmm. musician and the barber, the people people talk to. I had so many stories just from those individuals. <laughs> the beautician, the barber, and the bartender. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. The bartender. And I would say that the bartender probably pulls more out of you because you have let down all defenses. <laughs> you are saying something to a perfect stranger that <laughs> if they were ever to put the story together. Ooh. But anyway, yes. So I, I wanted to just speak from the perspective of a cosmetologist who had done hair, yes. who watches yeah. people, yeah. who sees trends and people that get, oh, I'm going to get sister locks because not because I'm going to get a sister lock because it's going to look good, but because it's going to be automatic long hair <laughs> for that person who may have never had long yeah. hair growing up as a child. I just want to put a quick button, though, on something that you had said about the cosmetology school, because I think it's just important for a matter of perspective, um, especially when you then go on to later talk about what your job opportunities. You talked about going to a cosmetology school where there were only two Black people and where you had to essentially learn to do white white hair yes the thing that i think people need to also remember is that in whenever you go into licensed hairdresser or barbershop you see their cosmetology school degrees and licenses on the wall so had this black woman not studied white hair you would not have had that as a potential occupation on the other side white people of course can pretend that they don't know how to handle black hair and hair Absolutely. is really hair. Mm -hmm. um, so I had one white woman, I, I was in Paris one time and a white woman said, of course I can do her hair. And I came out looking like Jacqueline Kennedy. <laughs> and then I was in Amherst, Massachusetts, and I walked into a hair salon and was told, sure, we can we can help you. And the woman resigned over my head. So Herbal, <laughs> you looked as though you were gonna say something. Well, I was gonna say, you know, I went to a vocational high school and I was trained to be a legal secretary. At the time I attended that school, it was 98% black. I think there were two, two or three white women still left because what they had done was to take what was becoming a growing profession, cosmetology, and they had moved it. They had created a new school for white women to go to. So that was going to give them a greater success mm -hmm. route than those of us who were either doing the home economics or the legal secretary. Thing. But I was trained to be a vocational. Uh, I went to a vocational school because one, it was all girls. There weren't as many issues of violence uh, there. It was smaller classrooms. And it was also kind of the way that I was raised is that you need to have a backup plan. Like I knew I was going to go to college. No one else in my family had ever gone. My mother tells me, told me years later, she always, she said you would come up with these ideas and I had no idea how they were going to happen. But I sort of, but I still knew I needed to have a backup plan, which is that, you know, so I worked my way through college by typing and, you know, as a writer, learning shorthand and eventually my own version of shorthand has come in very handy. Mm -hmm. And actually I ended up being the worst boss for secretaries because I knew exactly what they were supposed to be doing. <laughs> and I had very low tolerance for people who couldn't do their job. But cosmetology at that moment you're talking about was really something that was confined or reserved for white women so that they would have a mobility route. And, you know, we had this history yes. of black hair with people. Well, even before there was Madam C.J. Walker, there was um, there Poro. was a, the, the woman Annie, who created the Poro School. Annie, yes. You know, so I'm we had alone. this history of people who knew how to take care of our hair, but they weren't given the conduits and the opportunity to become professionals. It was in someone's kitchen. It was in someone's, you know, home where they were trying to, to do this because those opportunities were taken away. 
I think we also have to remember that during the period of enslavement, Black women were the hairstylists for all exactly. those white women. Every time we look at I can't stand Gone with the Wind, but every time you look at Gone with the Wind, you and you romanticize this, the way Scarlet looks is through some Black woman's hands and imagination. The way Scarlet dresses is the imagination and the um, millinery expertise and also the, the couturier expertise yes. of Black women. It's mm -hmm. not until after <laughs> enslavement that we have to be paid to do what our imaginations have been doing for, at that point, uh, 246 mm -hmm. years. Mm -hmm. um, not until we have to be paid. And then these schools are created that say, now this is the way to keep you keep you, you know, give somebody else an edge because you're not going to be able to, you're not going to be accepted into the schools in the first place. Exactly. So if we have these schools that you can't be accepted into and we have a licensing process that you obviously cannot um, meet, then who are you, you know? And and we're we're back there. I, I just want to switch over to to Dakota. Dakota, the you know you're listening to to us talk about things in our own lives and long ago, and we say intergenerational. But what is striking you with this? What is striking you about some of the things we've said? Are you, you know, what is it telling you about your own life, or what is it evoking in you? I mean, it really just. It makes me think about my own experiences also just that I've had and reflecting on that, especially with hair, because I recently just wrote an essay for an online publication entitled My Hair because I I just recently cut it and because I've just had so much with my hair, I I used to have it so long and curly when I was young. And then when I got into around like middle school, it just, I grew up in a predominantly white town. So I was one of the only kids of color. And I, I started just straightening my hair so much and cutting it into so many different styles. And I just, I straightened it so much. And I did that all throughout high school. When I went into college, I told myself that I was going to wear my hair natural more, but then I I joined a sorority and then I just kept straightening it and I've I've straightened it, I've dyed it, I've cut it, I've highlighted it. I've done so much with my hair instead of just giving it what it it needed. And instead of just appreciating it, and I think a big part of it is also like my mom, I mean, she grew up, she felt that she feels that her natural hair is like not does not look good. And so she has always straightened her hair. She's always relaxed her hair. And that's, I saw how she felt about her hair. And I think it kind of just made me with also just hearing from kids who are terrible in like middle school and high school and stuff all of that just made me have so many misconceptions about how I needed to present my hair and that I needed it to be long to be feminine I needed it to be straightened to be accepted in society and all these things and I yeah I I recently I cut it because I was just so tired of feeling so annoyed with my hair I was tired of hating it and I was like I just want to wear it natural and I also I just want to cut it off I just want it gone for a second like I just need it I need to start over with my hair and I I mean there was one line that I wrote in my essay that just got published that I said that my mom has always straightened and relaxed her hair and has not accepted it and I guess I truly am my mother's daughter because mm -hmm. I am that same way with my hair and it's such a universal experience though with black women yeah. and 
so many women of color with their hair and feeling like it has to be something different instead of just doing what we want to do with it. And or what it wants, to, letting hair be what hair wants to be. The Sister Day's Mother Daughter Sister Fest, a celebration of women and our lives. On our guest panel, Dakota Nelson, Deborah Peyton Jones, L. Cole, Marianne Howland, and Irma McLaurin. More here on The Janice Adams Show after the break. We're back here on the Janice Adams Show for the Sister Days Mother Daughter Sister Fest, a two-part special celebrating mothers, daughters, sisters, and sister friends with our guests, Dakota Nelson, Deborah Peyton Jones, L. Cole, Marianne Howland, and Irma McLaurin. I just want to say you've mentioned this article um, and for we for those people who aren't aware of it, we have a website, sisterfest.com, sisterfest.com. And Dakota, I'm going to ask you if we can post that article on that website so that um, people can come and, and see it. Of course. Thank you. Marianne. Thank you, Janice. That's, I was, that was exactly what I was going to ask, is where can we read your article? But, um, but, I, but I also wanted to ask a question, and maybe it's to Deborah. And it's about the subject of alopecia. So my mother was like Dakota's mom, you know, always straightening her hair, the hot comb. Y'all, I know y'all got hot comb stories. I know I have, I probably have scars. I kept one. I kept right. one just right. because I, I it is I the story of black women. I kept yes, one. I so my mom, you know, was always straightening her hair. Oh my God. Right. I mean, I was just, and, and I remember as a little girl, cause I always had a lot of hair. So, I mean, the sessions in the kitchen are, Varnette P. Honeywood does a, has a picture that she did. Yes. Can your hair done it? I, I have that picture on my wall because that's so many memories, but um, with the Dixie Peach, right? But um, um, so, but all the straightening, you know, over by the time she got into her, like, I don't know, late sixties or such, she developed alopecia. And so, and that meant to wearing wigs, right? So, and she was always, as Dakota describes, just obsessed with her hair. I mean, obsessed. And my hair too. So when I would do things, like the fact that I wore it natural, and then at one point I cut it all off, I went through that phase, and then let it grow, and then put locks. My mother was just, oh my God, Marianne. She was always like, what are you doing with your hair? What are you doing with your hair, right? But my question is, alopecia, which, to, and, I, and correct me if I'm wrong, but what I've heard is, is a, has a higher, a statistic of, of occurrence in black women. And I'm wondering, is that a result of bad hair care? Is it a result of, you know, the, the, the constant straightening and the perms and the weaves? Could that be a reason for it? Absolutely. And there are, they say that there are medical reasons why after a certain time period that your follicles close up and create the bald spots, uh, which is termed alopecia, and that's really alopecia areata. Alopecia areata is baldness in spots. And so a lot of people get that. We have believed over the years that it can be caused by stress. It can be caused by, there's several different reasons, but there's never been a comprehensive study uh, of Black women to see exactly how and why. Now, my, uh, only because I've been having my hand in people's hair for over 50 years is that it's the care, the lack of care, the uh, products that are put onto their yes. heads that are then damaging, uh, products that are alcohol-based should never go anywhere near in our hair, but we have found that that's what most of the suppliers that we buy from have if you have to look at the, the ingredients on all of your products, uh, the most successful people are people that put your mayonnaise and your eggs in your hair and the olive oil and make that your, you know, you, you smell like a salad for a minute, but then your hair is, it brings back the sheen. Uh, we are not, uh, the, the difference in, in hair is some hair uh, with Caucasians is not naturally oily. So the need to wash your hair every day is prevalent because otherwise you have very heavy oil and uh, that is naturally produced. In people of color, 
their hair need be washed far less because it has a drying effect on your hair. And when you put those products in your hair, because we don't produce, uh, our sebaceous glands do not produce the oils that the Caucasian population uh, produces. So our hair is less oily. Uh, so it's just a total difference. It, it's, you cannot ever, and all of this I learned by learning how to do Caucasian hair. And I had to make myself learn how to do, because I said, everything that I'm taught to do here, if I did it on my hair, I'd look like I was a, a broom with straw. And so it was all self-taught. Yeah. And so that's what, how that helped me. But to, to answer your question, alopecia and alopecia areata, so many different reasons, stress in my mind is the most, is the underlying factor and bad hair products. And could I, Walker, could I? I was just going to say, Alice Walker said, "Oppressed hair puts a ceiling on the brain." Yes, and I think this is, you know, two two stories. One is when my daughter was in first grade, she came home in tears because I corn rolled her hair, and the kids started calling her Medusa. And at that moment, I went on a campaign. I contacted everyone in the family and said, no more white Barbies in this house. Don't send them because they're going in the garbage. And then I got my subscriptions to Essence and Ebony, more so that she could see the range. My daughter has a lot of hair. What often happens, and this is to your point, people don't understand that black hair is actually very fragile. Mm -hmm. And it actually can't take, most people over-process black mm -hmm. hair 100%. because they don't understand that it's fragile. Just because it's thick doesn't mean that it's it's coarse. Exactly. It's just thick. We have a lot of it. Mm -hmm. My daughter has gone from shaving her head at age 12, 13, in which I said it was the best year of my life because we didn't have to fight over what was going <laughs> to happen with her hair, to, to wearing dreadlocks, to undoing the dreadlocks, to doing it, you know, so she's not a short stage. I never know what it's going to be. But my point is that I had to be very intentional about what to do with her hair and how to communicate, you know, to your story about what you were learning from your mom. And my hair, my natural hair is way past my shoulders now. It's completely gray. It's natural. But part of that had to do with a Puerto Rican hairdresser that I met in New York when I was there in 2005, who would say, Irma, you don't need all that stuff in your hair. And I came into a culture of less is more, Yes. that the less products we put on it, it's a lot of it is that the products we're using are drying. We're putting a lot of oil in, and if we're not washing it, we're getting bacteria in it. And so it's, it's that part of what's on the hair, but then it's also what we put in our bodies in terms of the amount of protein and those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. Even black hairdressers are, are sort of trained in a way that they don't understand the multiplicity and the totality of black hair. So mm -hmm. I put very little oil in my hair because my hair does produce something. I put conditioner in it, and then I just don't do a lot. I braid it every night because the longer it is, you kind of have to do more with it. And that has produced, I mean, every time I go into the hairdresser, it's like, my God, Irma, what are you doing? Your hair keeps growing. And it's, it's, it's part of it is what I'm putting in my body, the vitamins that I'm taking, but it's also, I put very little actually on my hair. Mm -hmm. You know, because it doesn't need that much. And we've, we've kind of gotten this grown up with this myth that black hair is difficult. And actually, it's not. <laughs> but people don't know what to do with it. And that has produced all kinds of problems, you know. And that's mm -hmm. unfortunate because you know, we put so much power in hair. So much power in hair. Even now, look at the kind of a conversation we've had just from hair. But the this the top line thing is what we do for ourselves and what all of this means in the context of how do we care for ourselves? Elle, I know both you and Marianne are vegetarian, um, but I wanted to ask you, uh, but I think you wanted to say something. So before I take you over to what I was going to ask you, what were you going to say? Well, I, I think this whole conversation really resonates with me because when I'm out in public, people often don't believe my hair is real. 
my hair is is past my bottom it's almost to my knees and i've had locks for 18 years but i've been natural for over 20 years and um like marianne i have not been one who likes to put products in my hair but i've always had an attraction for natural hair so naturally I was picked on as a child because it wasn't the norm. And my mom would sit there in the kitchen and burn my ears with the hot comb, but I didn't have long hair as a child. It wasn't until I was in around the fifth grade, I told my mom I was gonna take ownership of my own hair because I had a gift, a natural gift to doing hair. Some people are born just, you know, able to braid and able to do hair. and. As the youngest, that was my gift. And so I would do my sister's hair, even my mother's, but I had an older sister who locked her hair first. She's she's actually, um, she's multiracial, but she locked her hair first and it was beautiful. It was, cur- her locks were curly at the end and very, very long and very thick. And I remember one of my sisters saying, when I told her, when I went to college that I wanted to lock my hair, she was like, but your hair is thin. Are you sure you wanna do that? And I was like, but it's my hair, (laughs) you know, it's my hair. And I know that my hair will do what it wants to do, just what you said earlier. And when I did that, my hair thrived. It it grows, it thrives. And I don't put a lot of product in it. As an entrepreneur, I travel around the country and I've met all different types of entrepreneurs who are in hair care, who often ask me, well, what do you do with your hair? Because they have thought of, you know, me being a part of their campaigns. But when I speak that I do nothing, the less I do, the more my hair thrives. Mm-hmm. then I become less attractive as a, a model. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but it's, it's true. Our hair, our hair yes. needs to breathe. It, yes. It's like, um, I don't, I don't put a lot of time into my hair because I feel like it can suck your time away. Oh, um, and so I like to create in other ways. And so the thing about hair is that if you let it live, if you let it breathe, if you let it grow, it will, because that's what it was created to do. I and think, so that's what I teach oh my, my daughters, but that's it. No, I mean, I just listened to you. And you know, if you took exactly that sentence, my hair, if you let it breathe, if you let it live, if you let mm-hmm. it do exactly what it wants to do, it will thrive. And you take out the word hair, my life, <laughs> if you let it live, if you let it breathe, if you let it be what it wants to be, we will thrive. Um, that is that is what I just heard. As when sister friends get together, we have been on for a while here. And I just want to kind of please open up all of your mics and just, you know, so that what's important at this moment in time for for you, for each of you. And just if we get a little feedback or whatever, hey, we get feedback all the time. So (laughs) so let's, let's just go for it. I want to start. So for me, I think this conversation has been important because I think it's a sign that we're supporting each other. We're learning from each other and we're open. I think sometimes as young black women, we don't always give each other a chance to listen. And so I enjoyed listening to the stories of each of you, because to me, it shows that even though we all look different, we all have different styles, different things that excite us, we have so much in common and we're so, we're sisters. We have so many similarities that should be celebrated. And so what I want to see more is more collaboration, more opportunities to love on one another. And I think this was just the beginning. Could I just hop in here, Janice? You know, because I've been kind of, you know, doing uh, my own form of Sister Fest off and on for a number of years. And I think about it as a space where Black women and other women of color, including LGBTQIA, can gather collectively. I think we need that space away from uh, safe and brave spaces where we can share our trials, our tribulations and triumphs of our life journey. But I also think it's away from our daily routines of work, worry, family obligations, being overachieving performers, 
you know, and the other responsibilities that Black women have carried. So I like to think of this kind of space of Sister Fest and Sister Friends as time and space for us to like collectively breathe and reflect, you know, to give us precious time that we often don't get when we're sort of under the gazes of black and white communities. Sometimes we just need to be with ourselves and for ourselves. Absolutely. You know, um, I mentioned the website sisterfest.com and it, it, it will stay up for a while. But on that website, when you go to it, you'll see on the speaker's pages quotes from each of us. And um, Irma, Irma's quote was, Black women deserve to be heard and nurtured. And that is what she has done uh, in, indeed, the Sister Fest. One of the, the ones she did very early on, she featured a documentary that I was working on at that point of documentary history of Black women, which was her way of nurturing and hearing me, but it was also a way of, through me, nurturing and hearing all of us. So um, that's what it is, you know, that is what it is. Irma? And what came out of that, you know, this was like in my home, but people turned to Janice and said, what can I do? What can I do to support you, to help you, to, to make this possible? And I think that's what this kind of gathering allows is for us to say, oh, you know, I think I, I have a way that I can support you to do what you need to do. But in doing so, I'm also supporting myself. You know, I'm also being able to give and share. And I think that's the important part of this, this kind of gathering together. I've met two people, one person who knows Nashville, right? So the next time I visit my son, I'm gonna look you up. And then the, uh, I think it was you, Ella, who's talking about North Carolina, Durham. I'm like 20 minutes from the airport, right? <laughs> so, and I have a guest room. If you decide you need to get away from family a little bit, I got a little guest room too, and you know? So that, you know, now I've got two people to be connected to. And Iowa, I'm actually, I went to school in Iowa. So okay. I also know Iowa very well. So, and I get there periodically. So you just never know where I might show up. And don't forget <laughs> to make your connection on Florida with you having yes, spent all yes. that time in Florida and Deborah being in Florida. So yes, yes. Let I'm actually the circle be unbroken. With the, with the University of Florida Press. So I may show up in Florida soon too. <laughs> That's, you know, what I hear is action items. I hear that we are all. Uh, doing so many different things and the impetus behind us doing it was passion related. And I, I feel that when you do things that are passion related and other people buy in, then that helps not only with your passion, but it helps them understand and maybe realize their own passion. And that's what happened to me during the pandemic. And I went to college in Florida, but I, I am in New York. I just wanted to make sure I'm in New York, but I, I did go to college in Florida. And the, the pandemic for me helped me pull out something that I hadn't done before that I've talked about for years. And so I started Voter Education 365, and I incorporated it in New York so that I can then talk to, in a bipartisan way, so that's non-threatening to individuals, to just educate people on the importance of not only the voter registration, but then your voter education, but then you have to mobilize and make sure that not only are you registered and you're educated, but that you actually do vote. So I've been speaking and accepting speaking engagements. They're like, well, how much do you charge? I said, in the first year, we're infantile right now, so we want to make sure that our message is clear and, and exact and that it's it's needed. And so we've done so much. I did three in the last week. And so it's just amazing to be able to sit with and meet with all of you and Janice being the orchestrator of this uh, time that we're spending together is time that we don't really have. Oftentimes, you don't have people in your inner circle that are as understanding as people that, as we spoke before, the barber, the beautician, and the, the bartender. You know, oftentimes you can get more feedback from one of them than people in your closest circle, because in your closest circle, everyone's doing their own thing. They're doing their own thing, and they're trying to not uh, allow your ideas and passion to become their ideas and passion. 
So this was just enlightening. It's always amazing to meet people that are doing so many other things and for you to be able to, for me to be able to share and to help in any way I can and to be a part of your passion and your passion journey. So uh, I think it's important and that's part of our self-care because we're doing things that we care about that are passionate to us and not just things that people are asking us to do because people will ask us to do things morning, noon, and night. And if we say yes to all of those, we're effectively saying no to ourselves. I love that. You know, mothers, daughters, sisters, sister friends, and you, you never know what's going to help you what's going to shape you, what's going to bring you into yourself and your mission. And, and I know I started my children's publishing company first because of the needs of my own children when they were little for materials that were respectful of them as children of color and as girls. And that was the birth of Backpacks. The Sister Day's Mother-Daughter-Sister Fest, a celebration of women and our lives. On our guest panel, Dakota Nelson, Deborah Payton-Jones, L. Cole, Marianne Howland, and Irma McLaurin. More here on The Janice Adams Show after the break. Here on the Janice Adams Show for the Sister Days Mother Daughter Sister Fest, a part two special celebrating mothers, daughters, sisters, and sister friends. With our guests, Dakota Nelson, Deborah Payton Jones, L. Cole, Marianne Howland, and Irma McLaurin. I know as well that both Elle and Marianne have found through the needs of their children some of their own expression. They've both become authors. They've both become major advocates for people with special needs. Marianne's book is Warrior Rising. Uh, how four men, I always helped a boy on his journey to manhood. Yay! And there's a link to that on on the website, and she also joined me on the show to talk about that. But talk about connections. She talks in that book about the need to create a nurturing growth process for her son. She'll talk more about it. But but she then, having created this black mitzvah for her son, has even offered to do to help me create one for my granddaughter. That's the connection there. Elle, who is, you know, a, a mom of twin daughters, as am I, you know, she's found a, a, a unique needed place for herself as an advocate and is also an author who is now on her fourth book, I think. Yay! <laughs> and um, absolutely. And we just never know. Marianne, tell us quickly about Warrior Rising. Yeah, it's my first book. So hashtag boy mom. That's me. Okay. Um, and uh, as, yes, as Janice has described, you know, I, so I'm a single mom. I run a business. I, you know, serve on several boards. I'm a, you know, a freelance travel writer. So I have a very, very busy life. And, um, and I'm raising a young man who's got cerebral palsy and ADHD. And, and, you know, so you know how, you know how we are. You, 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 you rise to the occasion, do what you have to do. And then people always come to me and go, man, how are you doing all these things? And I don't think about it. You just do it. Right. But when he, but it was when he was reaching his 13th birthday, you know, I, I realized that I could no longer do it alone. That because not only is he a boy, but a boy with unique challenges that I realized that it was really important that he had more men in his life that could help him with tools and resources that he needs to draw upon to be the man that he needs to be. He would love you all. He's a he's an advocate for women. He's a feminist, you know, because he's grown up around all these strong women. His mission as he was a, you know, young boy up, up well still till today, but especially in his younger years was defending women. You know, he would be the one mm -hmm. even though despite his his challenges if he ever saw anybody disrespecting a woman, my son would, with with all of his, 
wherewithal that he can muster, go and challenge people because that was something that he would not tolerate. So right. understanding that and understanding who he was becoming, really, you know, I, I wanted to make sure that I wasn't going to be, what's the word? I, I, I say damaging him, but making him like too much of a mama's boy and and, and wanted to make sure that he understood who he was. The Black Mitzvah, this rite of passage that I created for him, um, as you can tell, was is modeled after the Bar Mitzvah. And I, you know, I had done my research first to try to find a rite of passage that was unique to the African-American culture, but of course you all know we don't have one. And so, but the Bar Mitzvah, the three basic tenets that it's built upon are faith, community, and accountability. And I thought, oh. well, that's beautiful. So that was the, sort of the foundation, the core of what we created in our own way to, to you know, demarcate this moment for him that was him entering into his teen years. And these four men that wound up stepping in to be his four mentors that committed to him, that they would be there for him to help him become a righteous, mm -hmm. responsible, and respectful young man, and that's their words. Um, so the one thing that I would really encourage is we as women is a couple things. One is you don't have to do it alone. Mm -hmm. I think it was Dakota that talked about the village and, um, and how important that is. And for our young men, we have such an opportunity, all these strong women, it's raising our boys to be ready for us, ready for the kind of women that we want our boys to marry. My thanks to Dakota Nelson, Deborah Peyton Jones, L. Cole, Marianne Howland, Irma McLaurin, and you for joining us for this SisterFest today. For more about this two-part special, our guests, their bios, books, inspired stories, and special projects, including MyBackpacksKids.com, anti-racist resources for adventurous young minds, and a podcast of the full uncut event, visit my website, JanusAdams.com. In cooperation with WJFF Radio Catskill, post-production Jason Dole and Patricio Rabio, this show is a production of Janice Adams, LLC, All Rights Reserved. Mm -hmm.